This is the Moral Science Podcast, and I'm your host, Amber Cazell. In this series, I get to interview experts in my favorite subject, the scientific study of human morality, virtues and vices, evolution of morals, the judgment action gap, character development, the philosophy of morality, transcendent experiences, researchers' moral biases, cultural values, plus the obligatory trolley dilemma. We are going to talk about it all. Today I'm speaking with Dr. Sam Hardy. Sam is a developmental psychologist and an associate professor at Brigham Young University. He's most known for his work on moral identity and his work looking at the link between morality and religion across adolescent development. In this podcast, though, Sam and I discuss the history of moral psychology, from Lawrence Kohlberg's theory of moral development through the popularization of Jesse Graham and Jonathan Haidt's moral foundations theory. So Sam, what after doing your research, looking at the many varieties of, of moral science and the various branches that it's taken, what do you what do you think that moral scientists think the purpose of the discipline is? Yeah. Um, so most of my research has been on moral identity. I haven't done a, a lot of actually like scholarship on the various branches of moral science, but it's more just my own reading and being in the the mix of things and going to conferences and stuff like that. Uh, but yeah, I think it, um, everybody, it seems like everybody who is a big name, who kind of had their own somewhat original ideas in moral science, uh, probably initially got motivated either by how they observed the world, like things they observed in the world uh, or in their own life, um, as well as maybe other stuff that was going on in the discipline. So it started for the most part with Lawrence Kohlberg, Larry Kohlberg. Um, and from his perspective, uh, the focus should be on how do people decide what's moral or not moral? So how do how do people make judgments about uh, the morality of an action? Mm. So for him, the focus of moral science should be on cognition uh, and should be about judgments of the morality of moral action. Mm. So that so he developed his set of stages about that. And, and for him, it was actually even more narrow than that for the most part, because he, at the higher end of moral judgment, it was about justice and fairness. So what was moral was based on universal moral principles of justice and fairness. Mm. So for him, I don't know what he would say the purpose of, it, of moral science was, but probably like what I just said. So understanding how people make judgments about whether certain behaviors are right or wrong. But, uh, so any follow-up questions about that before I talk about other people that, and kind of how they reacted to him? Well, I guess I'm wondering, like, did Kohlberg think that that science would help develop morality in people once it was uncovered? 
Um, like, was his agenda, did he have an agenda to try to get people to be just and fair above all other types of morality? Yeah. Um, I'll be honest that I'm not a Kohlberg expert, um, but from my my understanding and from what I remember and have read about is that he, uh, this was around, like when he got started, it was sh- shortly after uh, the Holocaust or some, you know, things like that had, had at least happened or he was at least thinking about those things. He was thinking about war issues, you know, stuff like that. And so I think he was motivated by just like thinking, how could people do stuff like that? And wondering if it was about, you know, their ability to make judgments about whether certain behaviors were right or wrong. So I think that was his real life motivation. So his folk, I think that probably had something to do with why he emphasized cognition. Um, So yeah, there might be people who know more of the ins and outs of the story, but uh, that's that's my understanding. Okay. So then after Kohlberg, what happened? So a lot of extensions or reactions. Um, so if you just look at Kohlberg and you're like, okay, here's the strengths, here's the weaknesses or limitations. Um, a lot of the stuff that came after him that that had traction uh was based on reactions to him so the so the i don't know necessarily chronologically but um so one of the first reactions was hey your research is just on males so this was carol gilligan so she said your research is just on males and your research focuses just on justice and there's probably something related there. And she's like, well, maybe, uh, you know, females think about care, issues of care more than issues of justice. Um, so that was a critique. And she, you know, became a big name and stuff like that. Um, you know, it's it's funny. I've never um, directly thought about this before. But Carol Gilligan's response to Kohlberg kind of echoes moral foundations theory a bit? Uh, well, so yeah, I can go into some other reactions, but um, if you want to, like it was completely different how um, uh, the moral foundations, uh, Jonathan Haidt reacted, but the general sense is a lot of people thought that Kohlberg was too narrow in his definition of moral. And so he basically said, what's moral is what's just, what's fair and just. So basically to him, somebody that's really moral is somebody who's has mature moral judgment abilities, moral reasoning. And that basically means that they're able to, uh, look at like all the people that are involved in a particular situation or behavior and figure out what's the most fair or just behavior in that situation. Or if you say, what about this behavior? Is that fair or just? They're looking at the consequences to everybody. And so a lot of people thought that like for various reasons, that's too narrow. And so Gilligan's 
uh, critique was it's too narrow in the sense of it's probably a male-focused justice issue. And other people, women, might be more interested in care. Uh, and then, so then uh, there's other approaches that I can talk about next that even broaden it beyond that and say, well, there's even more than justice and care. But the first step was her saying, it's probably more than just justice. It's probably also care. And some of the people that I come from, so I, I worked with Gus Carlo as my uh, PhD mentor, and his mentor was Nancy Eisenberg. So that's kind of the pro, pro-social camp. And they also did a lot of work on moral reasoning about care as well. So they kind of followed from Gilligan in that sense. Mm. Um, so let, let's go ahead and just talk about all the various different branches. So obviously Kohlberg took a very cognitive approach. What other kind of approaches kind of blossomed after that? Okay, so another critique was, hey, you're just studying people that are Western. So not only is it just white males, it's Western white males. So this was Richard Schwader, and this is more of a cultural approach. And so he said people in other cultures have other bases for morality uh, rather than just what Kohlberg was thinking of. So Kohlberg's, and, and even Gilligan. So Schwader's approach, uh, he, pit, he talks about three ethics. So there's autonomy, community, and divinity. And justice and care are in the autonomy, which he would call like an individualistic ethic. So basically what Kohlberg and Gilligan were, were focusing on as the basis for morality is all about individuals. So that's the ethic of autonomy. But to Schwader, other cultures talk about also ethic of community and ethic of divinity. And so community is kind of duty, duty to uh, others or the welfare of the group. And then divinity is, you know, about, you know, relation to God, transcendent, stuff like that. Um, so there's autonomy, which is individualistic, community, which is kind of collectivistic, and then divinity, which is transcendent. So those two bases for ethics, he's, he has shown, well, they're probably also present in Western cultures, but, but, they're, but he at least uh, focused on how they come up in other cultures as well. So it's interesting. I would have, I would have thought of justice and care as somewhat collectivistic um, because they theoretically help a group function well. What was sort of the rationale, like what either the rationale behind why that would be individualistic um, or just like what would be an example of a community and a divinity type of value? Yeah, I think the issue is if you're talking about a particular behavior, something that somebody does, um, and trying to think about it in, in moral terms. Um, autonomy would focus on what's the consequences for individuals. So if I, if I hurt somebody um, or do, if I do something wrong, if I do some, uh, let's say, um, if I, uh, 
let's see if I steal something or whatever from somebody. So then the the autonomy might focus on the consequence to that person that I stole from. Whereas the community might focus on the community ethic might focus on the impact of stealing on my community. So like the the greater good or the the bigger community. Um, I'm not an expert on the ethics either, but that's my sense of how they would be different is it's whether the, whether, whether we're talking about consequences to people, like we're being unfair to this one person or we're, we're doing something that harms this one person versus, uh, what we're doing negatively impacts the community, our group, our family, our culture, whatever. Okay. So kind of the level of the consequence, I guess, or the impact of behavior for better or worse. Okay. So what were then some of the criticisms of Schweider's approach? Uh, I don't really know about the criticisms of his. Um, so nobody really studied, not, like not that much research is still being done directly on Kohlberg. So Kohlbergian, like I don't really see people at conferences or in publications that much anymore, like doing research on Kohlberg's stages or whatever. But the three ethics is still around and kicking, and so I don't know the specific critiques of uh, of of their approach, but uh, but it's definitely still alive and kicking, and people are studying it. Um, so like Lena Lena Jensen, um, Laura Padilla Walker here at BYU did a couple things on it. Jacob Hickman at BYU is an anthropologist, so it's still it's still out and about as a as a theory that's active. And more like within the cultural psych. And there's probably other people in cultural psych that take a cultural psych approach to moral morality that um that have disagreements or whatever with with the three ethics. I'm not I'm not sure on the specifics. Um so there's that there's so we've done like Gilligan and then the three ethics. Uh and then another critique that you had mentioned before is which is more recent like started i think brewing in the 90s uh was is the moral foundations theory with Jonathan Haidt and when this one came out there was the paper uh the rational dog let's see the emotional dog wagging the rational tail or something was one of the first papers and yeah the emotional dog and its rational tail <laughs> yeah so when that that was pretty early in Haidt's career and I think I, the sense I got from, from people that I hung out with was this is kind of bogus. <laughs> uh, so, so it's, let's, can we back up just a little bit? So this paper, my first experience with it was actually when I was an undergrad taking Ross's class, you know, Ross. Um, and I, I thought it was absolutely fascinating. It was provocative, but fascinating. Um, so for people who might be listening to this podcast and who aren't familiar with um, the social intuitionist theory, which is what that paper that Haidt um, published is about, can you can you tell them a little bit sure. about that paper? And so, yeah, and he used to call it the social intuitionist model, and now I think it's called moral foundations theory. So that's kind of the, they're both the same, but one he used to use and then he has a new name. Um, so yeah, so his, his critique is basically Kohlberg focused on, um, conscious, deliberative, 
cognitive processes. So you look at a behavior or you're trying to think of what you should do and you're just like thinking about it and you're weighing this and that. And he, he thought, you know, that is probably a very thin slice of what's going on. That's like the tip of the iceberg of what's going on. And he really thought a lot of what was going on was more uh, intuitive processes. So, uh, unconscious cognition, uh, under the surface and sort of like gut reaction stuff. So he related it to disgust. So if you see something gross, you're like, oh, that's gross. And it's kind of a gut reaction. He thought morality was really a lot like that. And then if somebody says, well, why is that wrong? Then the conscious stuff that what Kohlberg was talking about is more how people make sense of what they their gut reaction says is wrong. So he was thinking it's kind of a post hoc part of of the process um so that's the basic idea is evolutionarily based um moral react uh, evolutionarily based intuitive kind of gut reactions to things are what is the basis for morality and you said so so how was that received you said that a lot of people thought it was just wrong well I'm just thinking, I'm just remembering like when I first read it and we were and talked to my advisor and other people and we're just like, this is, this is kind of dumb, but that was <laughs> when it was first going and we, and so it was kind of like, this is, this guy's wacky, but then it really started to get traction as he continued to refine the theory and, and start talking about the, the five foundations and, and doing research on it and empirically justifying it that it started to get traction. Um, to be honest with you, like looking at how people receive it now, um, in developmental psychology, the people I hang out with, um, you know, Darshan Narvez, uh, Gus Carlo, Larry Walker, still probably, um, critical of it. Uh, because I feel like developmental psychology, uh, so, so they're critical of it. Social psychology seems to be all over it and think that it's really great. And and like anybody studying moral psych and, and social psychology probably has a lot of respect for it or is, or is using it as their theory. It's also really big in business um, and IO psych. So And the difference is I feel like developmental psychology still um, puts a lot of focus on cognitive processes. So even though Darsha Narvez and other Narvaz would uh, would say, uh, um, you know, not everything is is conscious, like what Kohlberg said. So there are unconscious processes. Uh, I don't, uh, and I don't know all the details of her her criticism of it, but they're documented in papers and stuff. Um, so, so why why do you think that developmental psychologists still focus on? still focus on um cognitive processes and are therefore less receptive to sort of the foundations uh so yeah i don't know um there's definitely more if you're comparing developmental and social developmental more a focus on cognitive conscious processes whether you're talking about cognitive development or whatever more of a focus on conscious processes more of a sense of people as agents so construct you know piaget constructivism uh a lot of the you know the theories of of psychology erickson and everything have a uh more of a conscious um deliberative focus 
Whereas social psychology now, the zeitgeist is basically like most of what's going on is under the under the surface. So there's a big focus on automaticity, unconscious processes, um, uh, implicit associations, all this kind of stuff is is the thing. Um, Dan Wegner's stuff talking about you know how more or less like agency doesn't exist or whatever or, or downplaying the role of agency. And so there's just like a different feel in developmental and social. And I don't know if that's the only reason people have beef with height and developmental, but um, that's a big part of it. Whereas in social psych, everybody's like, yeah, this is totally it. You know, this is the thing. Uh, that's That interests me. And I think it's funny because, you know, I've never explicitly noticed that pattern before, but I can see that you're right, that social psychologists really love a lot of heights work and you don't hear about it so much from developmental psychologists. Um, but I guess I think that's funny because, you know, I have two toddlers and it doesn't seem like toddlers. It seems like toddlers are less cognitively systematic than adults are that they don't, their reasoning is kind of, wacky you wouldn't necessarily follow it so it's kind of funny that kids who are so emotional are studied more through a lens of more through a cognitive lens than through an emotional lens I guess I would expect it to be the other way around uh I don't know if it's so much the cognitive emotion distinction it's whether or not it's like deliberative processes versus unconscious processes because height uh, probably wouldn't call what he studies emotion. He would call it more intuitive, fast cognition. Uh, it feels more emotional because it's like I said, it's like gut reaction. But it's it's like a, there's a lot of research and theory in psychology, various branches where about like dual process, where some of what happens cognitively, emotionally, or whatever. Pro- probably mostly people are thinking about cognition is is deliberate and and slow and conscious and other stuff is implicit and fast and intuitive and so it's just developmental focuses on the deliberative part and social focuses on the uh, intuitive part uh so anyway that's the (laughs) that's the that's the difference that still just seems so odd to me but um, so for for people who still, again, just aren't all that familiar with moral foundations theory, what we've mentioned a few times, the foundations, what are we talking about? What are those foundations? So they're different. Um, uh, I'm not sure how you would exactly define it, but they're different um, foundations, bases of of uh, what drives our sense of morality. So what's right and wrong? from his from his evolutionarily based intuitive perspective um and so there's five and the first two map onto the autonomy ethic of schwader and map onto what kohlberg and gilligan talked about so the first two are fairness and care so justice and care and those are, some people have labeled those as the individualizing foundations, just how we talked about with Schwader, those are the autonomy ethic. And so how Schwader 
had his stuff that was beyond the individual. Um, there's three foundations in Heights theory that are called binding foundations that are more about group kind of stuff. And so there's loyalty. Uh, let's see, the other one's called liberty. They had it, he called it authority before, I think. And then the other ones. Well, I think I think liberty is actually one that they're entertaining as a sixth, right? So there's there's um there's loyalty, authority, and then sanctity or purity. They've changed the names of them. That's why. So they've kind of changed the names of some of them or expanded. It kind of depends on which paper you're looking at. But um, but there's basically the five, maybe the six, but anything that's not justice and care is a binding foundation and it has to do with um, group dynamic sorts of uh, obligations, commitments, sense of, a, of morality or the sanctity, which is probably more related to uh, the divinity ethic. So the, so the loyalty, liberty, authority is kind of related to the community ethic that, that Schwader talked about. But Schwader, the difference is Schwader didn't ground his in, in, in evolution and didn't, focus on the you know intuitive versus deliberative he focused on the yeah. cultural processes whereas so heights basing his in um, evolution if moral foundations theory if they do choose to add liberty and liberty versus oppression as a moral concern or foundation would that fall into one of schweider's three ethics or would that kind of be a fourth new one uh, I think I think all of those are probably within the community because it all has to do with group dynamics. Mm. Either either how you relate to the group as a whole or the the leaders of the group stuff like that. I'm not, I'm not sure. Okay. But he's used this, so his stuff gets is pretty hot. Height stuff's pretty hot in the news, just because he's uh, done a good job connecting it to things like politics. And so mm -hmm. uh, I don't know the latest on what he's doing, but uh, from what I remember, he talked a lot about in the past about how Democrats really only use the individualizing foundations or, or primarily use the individualizing foundations, whereas Republicans use all five. And so he's using this as like a way of understanding why Democrats and Republicans think differently about moral issues because there's a difference in terms of emphases and breadth of how people go about it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think it's, I, I would like at some point to try to get maybe Jesse Graham, you had mentioned before on the, um, on the podcast to ask a little bit more about those foundations because it's not clear to me, like, I, you know, they set out to create a system of kind of classifying moral perspectives. Um, and yet the researchers themselves are, are human beings. They can't really get out of their experience as a human being to develop that from a purely unbiased perspective. And as I was kind of looking at some of their questions the other day on their, on their questionnaire, their moral foundation questionnaire, I realized that like when they ask questions about justice and fairness, 
that the meaning of those words could be really different for a conservative and a liberal. Um, so, for instance, it doesn't necessarily distinguish between fairness versus equity or like splitting a resource perfectly equally among people versus splitting a resource according to um, like some measure of merit and like who worked harder for the resource or what have you. They don't actually distinguish between that. And that might, it, I think that's interesting because as I recall, liberals and conservatives score similarly with respect to those individualizing foundations, the care, harm, and the fairness um, and justice, but they might actually be meaning something totally different. Yeah, uh, that's like a measurement equivalence thing you're talking about. But um, I don't know, but when I was putting together, like reading some stuff for a conference talk I gave on all this stuff we're talking about recently, um, seems like I ran across something on that like doing some kind of measurement equivalence across. Uh, but I could be wrong. But yeah, if it hasn't been done, then it should be done. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, they've done a lot of similar things of what you're talking about with religious versus le like more religious versus less religious people on Kohlberg's uh, measures and other sorts of uh, moral development measures because there's some evidence that Kohlbergian sorts of ways of assessing uh, moral development or biased against religious people. So mm -hmm. yeah, uh, that's pretty important to do these kinds of measurement equivalence things where you're looking at are the, are the measurement instruments used to capture uh, moral competence, moral functioning, or different ways of thinking? Are they equivalent across these groups that may be looking at things differently? Uh, mm -hmm. And people have looked at it, so... And generally, they they aren't equivalent, <laughs> or I mean, maybe some cases they are, but um, it's pretty common that people are finding uh, unequivalent measures. Yeah. So, what other kinds of camps or ways of studying morality exist? So, there's two other camps. Maybe I'll think of some other ones in the process, but there's two others. So one, uh, that's another reaction, uh, doesn't really have a name, like one person to attribute it to or, or, uh, or a name to define it by. So I just call it the moral personality approach or camp. And that really started when in the eighties, early eighties, uh, People like um, James Rest and uh, Augusto Blasi started, well, primarily Augusto Blasi started saying um, the problem with what Kohlberg was doing is that uh, judgment, moral reasoning doesn't really consistently or at least doesn't really strongly predict behavior. So if we're focusing on moral judgment, um, there's a gap between moral judgment and behavior. And so they started it. So Blasi started to think about maybe um, moral identity. So how important being a moral person is to your identity was a, a motivating factor that kind of bridged the gap. So when people know what's right, if it's really important to them as a person to be a, a moral person and to do what they know is moral, then that's going to kind of motivate them to 
to follow through on their moral judgments. And then, uh, you know, probably the next big thing was Colby and Damon's book on moral exemplars, where they showed that moral exemplars aren't necessarily exemplary in terms of moral judgment, but they are exemplary in terms of things like moral identity, how important it is to them, their level of commitment, stuff like that. And then, you know, you had, then you had Larry Walker and similar stuff, uh, looking at, um, moral, uh, moral exemplars as well, but also like lay conceptions of morality. And so all of this is basically another way of broadening morality, but in the sense of saying we're broad. So, uh, the reactions we've talked about so far have generally stayed with the theme of cognition, like how we think about morality. And so, and, and they're all broadening how we think about what's moral, but, but the, the focus is still on what's moral. Um, whereas the moral personality people say, well, it's more than just cognition. Uh, it's also like identity and personality and emotion and all these other things that are important. So like a more holistic view of morality. Um, and that's the camp that I hang out with the most, but, and there's a lot of people in there, but, um, but that's a reaction and that's a still a pretty prominent perspective in developmental psychology. The other one I'll bring up, um, cause they're kind of competing current approaches in developmental, um, is l- sort of a reaction to Kohlberg, but maybe more of an extension because it's, it's, it didn't like veer that far from him, but it's like his current extension. And that's the uh, social domain theory, mm-hmm. which is, which is Turiel and Nucci and those kind of people, Elliot Turiel. And there they stayed on the idea of, uh, what matters most is reasoning and justice, but they had a different way of slicing it up. So their focus is on um, how people decide whether an issue is a moral issue or not. So the distinction between when something is a moral issue and when it's not a moral issue. So they talk about how any given behavior people can look at and say, well, is this a moral issue or is it a social convention or is it just a personal opinion or is it kind of uh, a you know a mix of those things, or a pragmatic concern? I, I guess that's the other one. Pragmatic concern. So why should we do this? Uh, should we do it because it's moral? Because it's just our a law or a rule or some kind of social convention? Should we do it because somebody's personal preference, or just because it makes sense practically, pragmatically to do it? And so they talk about how that develops, the distinction there, people being able to distinguish that. And so what, how is that, is that area of moral psych still burgeoning? Um, so in developmental, at least, the two predominant approaches are the moral personality approach I talked about and the social domain. So the social domain would be another one that focuses on cognition, And then the moral personality wants to broaden out beyond that. So when I go to conferences and look at handbooks and stuff these days, it's it's mostly those two approaches as well as probably the cultural approach, you know, the three ethics. 
and then in social psych it's it's pretty much social intuition but in developmental so, it's probably actually also uh social personality if you lump social and personality it would be the moral personality people but they do stuff that's less uh experimental like what the uh, i guess they do some of that too so so the the moral so yeah let's say in developmental science the pro, developmental psychology the predominant approaches are social domain moral personality and three ethics and in social psych it would be social uh well the moral foundations theory as well as moral personality because there are people in social psych and business um carl aquino's done a lot with moral identity and then larry walker published a lot in personality journals as well so you would sorry did you say social domains theory the one where you're trying to classify what is and is not a moral issue versus a social convention versus a preference what are there more in social psych or developmental so that's in developmental okay yeah that's that's interesting because i feel like there's a bizarre tension that i've never considered before between social domain theory and um moral foundations theory because moral foundations theory is saying hey there are these different foundations that kind of depend upon what culture or group you're in and social domain theory would say well if it's dependent upon what culture you're in it's not really a moral issue it's a social convention it seems like it seems like moral domain theory um Again, that's the that's the theory that you're trying to classify what's a moral issue, what's a social issue. That seems like that must be a pretty uh, controversial area of research right now, um, given like just political atmosphere. Um, I imagine I imagine there's a lot of tension between trying to classify what is universally accepted natural morality and what is just social convention i guess i'm thinking about yeah. things like um yeah i see what you're saying that um so the di- the difference uh so i don't know if you want to talk about the difference between the approaches but one difference is social domain is still under that kind of constructivist idea of, of so it focuses on um conscious deliberative processes and um whereas social or whereas moral foundations focuses on the unconscious deliberate or intuitive processes and then and then the other distinction where what like what you said which is that social domain is about whether or not something is a moral issue or not and then moral foundations is about well of the moral issues here's the various ways things can be can be moral can be morally grounded um all of these perspectives that I've talked about are intention and, and like kind of argue with each other. Um, but uh, hold on. So all of these are intention with each other and and sense of like arguing in publications or at conferences. Uh, but I'm not sure how much the domain approach, the, the social domain theory is gotten traction or whatever respect in social psych or or it could be just another manifestation about how the developmental approaches are in conflict with the social psych approaches 
Yeah. And I, and I was talking about tension. Like, yes, it, there's definitely a tension between the different approaches, but just social domain theory seems like it would be in hot water from any political person's perspective right now, because um, I don't, politics seems to be going this direction of uh, like relying a lot on what is and is not universal or natural for dictating what public policy should be like. Um, and so like, I think the last time I was at a social domains theory, AME post conference kind of meetup, one of the examples was like, well, is a, is wearing a hijab, is that a moral issue or is that a social convention? And you could see how today trying to draw those lines between what is and is not a moral issue could really uh, just spark a lot of heated debate. Yeah, and I'm not sure how much the social domain people have gotten into that application of their theory, whereas height totally has gone with it. Um, social domain theory is focused a lot on education. So they do a lot with moral education in elementary ages and, and maybe maybe uh, junior high, high school ages. I'm not sure. But that's been the primary place where they've looked at the application of their theory, uh, as well as probably some other things. But uh, like, you know, I think they've done research on things like illegal downloading and other sorts of like downloading music and stuff like that. So there's other little niche applications but i don't know how much they've applied it to the political maybe they have i just don't know I, i'm not aware of it yeah yeah so those are the main areas that moral science has really branched off into you'd say right yeah those seem to be the major camps so from you personally why did you land in the identity camp? Uh, so when I was working, when I decided to switch advisors and work with Gus Carlo, start to pursue the moral development area, he gave me a book uh, by Dan Lapsley called Moral Psychology. I think it's published in 96 or something like that. And it's like an overview of the field, at least to that point. Um, I'm not sure if height stuff was in there yet, but, um, but all the other ones were. And so just, you know, by the time I read through that, he sort of led me in that direction as an author, but I agreed with how he was making a case, uh, you know, stuff about like the gap between moral judgment and action and how identity might be important to that stuff about the idea of broadening beyond cognition to look at other aspects of personality that matter. And like I told you, I've always been really interested in motivation and, and, you know, people having integrity to behave consistent with what they know is right and wrong. So all of those things appealed to me and seemed to answer what I was interested in. So I was less interested in the thinking about it and more interested in what led to the behaviors. And So you would classify the study of moral motivation, kind of lump that in with personality and identity approaches to morality? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, the cognition, all the other groups have, have attended less to uh, motivational issues. 
So they've, they've sometimes used their theory to predict behavior, but they've attended less to issues of motivation and, and that sort of thing, and more just about how people think about morality. So um, I'm also assuming, I mean, you know, the, the I'm really interested in virtue ethics, and I would probably classify virtue approaches to morality in with kind of an extension of some of these personality and identity type studies. Do you think that's fair? Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, and some people have made that connection. I mean, a lot of the people who who write on it, like uh, Dan Lapsley, have drawn connections to character and virtue and that sort of thing. So it's because if you're thinking about what virtue means, it's broader than cognition. It's It involves cognition as well as behavior and other sorts of things, personality. So yeah, that makes sense. So um, one of the big critiques of of virtue approaches to studying morality, and I also imagine kind of all of moral identity or moral personality, is the situationist challenge. Um, could you kind of describe the situationist challenge, what it is, and sort of what your thoughts about it are? Has has identity and personality approaches to morality been able to address the situationist challenge adequately? Sure. Yeah. And I don't, um, so the way that I would describe it, and maybe this isn't what the challenge is per se, if there's a, if there's a specific thing, but it's basically the person situation dynamic, which is how much is behavior and that sort of thing, a function of personality factors that are within the person uh, versus situation factors that are external to the person. So how much is behavior driven by one or the other, or both or a combination? And, and uh, so let's see. So how has moral psych handled that? Well, most of these perspectives haven't handled it very well, let's say. <laughs> um, the... So the probably the the people who have explicitly addressed it the best are uh, the social domain theory people have done some of that because they basically the way that they do research is based on vignettes and stuff like that. So they'll talk about they really try to study it in a, in, in a way that's focused on a specific situation and context and how people would think about morality in that situation and context. Whereas Kohlberg was basically more generically saying, um, how do you, how does this person, what's this person's level of moral reasoning competence? And maybe there's some idea that they can like move up and down or whatever, but, but it was a stage theory and it's like, okay, this person's at this level. So that's a very stable way of thinking like personality personality way of thinking of it versus like or per not personality but person person level way of thinking about it versus a situation level um so one distinction to, to make uh for conversation purposes is between trait and state uh so sometimes people make distinctions between measures that are trait measures versus state measures so most measures in psychology are trait measures which means they're capturing the way people usually are. Whereas uh, 
state measures are capturing how people are at the current moment or like the current day or whatever. So experience sampling methods and stuff like that use state measures. Whereas most times if people have some kind of measure, whether it's a self-report, other report or whatever, they're capturing how people usually are. And so most of moral psych research is involved just like most other areas is trait measures. And because of that, hasn't really been able to get at situational dynamics as well. And that's definitely true of the moral personality perspective. Um, That's probably the biggest critique. I don't know how much people have made this critique, but this is definitely a big critique of the moral personality area is that so far, most people have just done the research with more trait measures. And so it's unclear how much moral identity and and these kinds of things are situation specific. Uh, so, yeah, uh, I guess my answer is that most people haven't done that good of a job of handling it. And most people have focused on individual level or person level factors and less attentive to the situation with the exception that social domain has done some of that and maybe other people here and there have done some of that with experiments and or or cultural or maybe the three ethics have done like culturally specific stuff you know that's that might be more situated that way so um that i mean that kind of brings us up to date with where all the various branches of moral science are, what kind of a trajectory do you think they're on and kind of what do you think is next for moral science? Uh, let's see. Well, definitely there's a lot that could be done in terms of greater methodological rigor. So that's things like uh, you know, from, let's say within developmental. So within developmental, uh, definitely a lot more is needed that's longitudinal or mixed methods, uh, or that's looked at like various levels of the phenomena, whether you're talking about like conscious, unconscious, how they work together, individual situation, how they work together, those kind of dynamics, uh, so looking at it in more of a complex way that's more probably in, in line with reality. Uh, so that's probably what I would think. Um, you know, biopsychosocial, that in terms of multiple levels. So why, um, could you talk a little bit about why methodological rigor matters? Like what, what new might be discovered with different approaches? Yeah, I think the issue, the problem for me or the issue is that reality is complex, uh, multi-layered, dynamic, all that kind of stuff. This is from theories like Braun from Brenner's ecological systems theory, Richard Lerner's relational developmental systems theory. All of those kind of approaches paint a picture of development and human functioning that's pretty complicated. And if people take a simplistic methodological approach 
to uh, studying moral development. At the least, they're going to get a very thin view of morality, but they also might get a, even an incorrect or inaccurate view. And so I feel like the more people take use these uh, rigorous methods, the more chance they have to getting an accurate depiction of what's going on. And it doesn't necessarily have to mean like technologically sophisticated research, but at least um, more thoughtful. So longitudinal mixed methods, experience sampling, uh, you know, qualitative research has a place too that, that adds a richness. So all those kinds of things I think would help with that, painting a more accurate picture of what's going on. As well as doing yeah, cross-cultural um, research. I I still am pretty flabbergasted just a couple of years ago being introduced. I think it was by you, Sam, um, being introduced to the, to the Simpson effect, which is um, kind of the statistical weird phenomenon that a person, like how to you know, personality characteristics might look like they're positive re positively related when you're looking at a whole population and just kind of collecting the basic non-rigorous data for a single person, for per once per person over a, a large group. But if you have um, multiple time points per person, the relationship between these personality characteristics could be exactly opposite of what it looked like in a large group. Um, so you, you had sent me that personality paper, the Fleeson paper, I think, um, that kind of showed, oh, when, it, it, when you look at a population of people, conscientiousness and neuroticism as two personality traits, they look like they're negatively correlated. But if you actually collect data at many time points from the same people, you can see that neuroticism drives conscientiousness so that when a person becomes more neurotic in a given moment, they respond by being more conscientious toward others or their environment or, or what have you. Um, and that's, I think that that's fascinating, but also alarming about how some of this methodological rigor that you're talking about really might uncover that a lot of what we know or think we know is not all that accurate. Yeah, that's right. Um, so that, yeah, I don't know that particular paper I think was Blackburn or somebody like that. I don't know the author, although okay. fleece, although Fleeson has done a lot on this kind of topic. Um, but, uh, yeah, that's a good example. Because most research, just like most research is at the trait level rather than the state level, uh, mm -hmm. uh, most research also looks at between group differences. So comparing people to people, uh, yeah. whereas there's less that's looked at with in-person uh, stuff that's going on with, in with in-person variability. And so that's more person-centered research or longitudinal experience sampling, that kind of stuff allows people to pick apart that and, and then they see those kind of things like what you're talking about that might throw a wrench in things. Yeah. So, um, just kind of as 
our final topic of exploration, one thing we didn't talk about at all is religion. And I think that probably a lot of lay people would expect that moral science delves quite a bit into religion. Um, could you talk a little bit about what the relationship between moral science and religion is? Sure. Uh, I mean, I don't want to say that the, that moral science is anti-religious. Not in a, they're not anti-religious in like a belligerent way, but largely they've been anti-religious in other ways. So uh, like Kohlberg's uh, didn't think religion really mattered that much to moral development until uh, he kind of later on in his theory tried to work it in there somehow. But also there's studies showing that all of his measures or or people that have developed other measures based on his measures were are biased. So religious people tend to look lower moral functioning um, based on their the fact that they uh, will appeal to God or religious authorities for for the basis of morality. Uh, and then as far as the other ones, so um, yeah, social domain theory, they've they've done a, a few studies. It's like a couple of decades ago on it. I don't know if they if I would say their research is necessarily biased against religion, but at least they talk about how religious people can, uh, distinguish between, um, what things are moral issues versus conventions within their religious faith. Uh, so they've, they kind of looked at that a little, so it's either been ignored or a lot of it has been biased against religious people. There hasn't been a lot of research looking at the overlap between religion and morality. Um, and why why is that? Is that for epistemo epistemological reasons, or is there something more? Uh, I'm not sure. Some of it could be that. And like, if you think in terms of like the three ethics and the the moral foundations, which are the the two approaches that really tried to broaden the definition of morality the most, they seem to mo open up the door for religion more than Kohlberg and social domain uh, because the F3 ethics has the ethic of divinity and then uh, moral foundations has purity, sanctity, some other things like that. So they open up the door for it. So people haven't done a lot of research on it. There's some. But but they at least those two approaches are at least less biased, whereas the earlier cog, the cognitive developmental theory about Kohlberg and then social domain seem somewhat biased against religious people, and then the moral personality is more just looked at the role of religion and and moral identity and other sorts of things. Or I think Larry Walker looked at moral exemplars versus like religious exemplars. But in general, it's yeah, it hasn't been a ton of research looking at the overlap, and some of it could be just a lack of interest, like not enough scholars that are interested in the overlap. Some of it could be that, uh, a, like, a lot of people who study moral development aren't religious or or whatever. It could be that. could be some of these more epistemological like Kohlberg's thing where, you know, it's it's based more on a constructivist idea or 
something like that and rather than you know a religious so what, sort of thing what percent of um moral scientists are religious do you think uh, I don't know. I can't. I can't give a percent. I know. I know people. <laughs> I know specific people who I think. I'm like, okay. I think that person's religious. Can you? Can you ballpark? Um, can you ballpark at least? Like, is this a large number? A moderate number? A tiny number? Uh, if we're gonna say like really religious versus just people who say, yeah, sure, I believe in God, I would say it would be a minority number that would be highly religious people but that's true of all academics and that's true of all of psychology and so it just maps on to it's not anything unique about moral psychology um, yeah no i mean it it certainly isn't unique um it does seem like people who aren't scientists might be a little bit surprised to learn that um because i think a lot of a lot of lay people who are religious would think that their religion really matters to their morality. Right. And that idea first came, uh, well, it obviously came to me cause I am religious, but th it first came to me from an academic source through Larry Walker and then probably also, uh, Colby and Damon, but Larry Walker was one of the people who wrote a lot about how, so Kohlberg's research was all based on um, moral dilemmas, contrived moral dilemmas, and saying, okay, what would you do in this situation, Heinz dilemma? Whereas Larry Walker said, well, that's kind of a contrived situation, and real-world morality is, is, is broader and deeper, or whatever you want to call it, than that. Uh, and so he was the one who said, yeah, actually, even though Kohlberg downplayed religion, real people uh, appeal to religion a lot. Uh, so yeah, that's what I think. That's why I'm interested in that, uh, idea of how religious versus more religious versus less religious people, how they look at morality differently. Um, and mm -hmm. it's been studied a little bit, but not a lot. So do you think that the future of psychology, well, I guess I should say social sciences more broadly, do you think that it will create more or less room for understanding how religion impacts morality over time well in general like all of all research is expanding over time just because more people get into research and so just just a numbers game mo like a lot of areas are increasing so research on religion psychology of religion spirituality is is dramatically increasing but that's probably true of lots of areas but i would say as far as like I don't know, like l more people are becoming non-religious over time historically. So society is becoming less religious over time. Mm -hmm. So that would probably mean academic, academic, academians, academicians are becoming uh, less religious over time. So it's, I, I guess in some ways it might get better. In some ways it might get worse. So more people are going to be studying it and there's probably more, uh acceptance of diverse opinions over time but 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 the on the other hand is that people are becoming less religious but like a, a correlated thing that there's so there's not that much data on like how much people are religious in the field but there is a lot of data on how 
much people are conservative versus liberal ideologically. So there's mm-hmm. some interest in that. A couple of papers and projects on that that show like the majority of people in psychology are are liberal. And I think that percent is in the 90s, 90 percent, if I if I remember accu- accurately. So that kind of, I mean, ideology like conservative versus liberal is sort of related to religiousness, but um, so that kind of gives you a sense of of the uh, how people how people fall on those kind of things yeah. in the field. All right. Well, so just turning back to kind of where we started with the purpose of moral science, are you hopeful that moral science is is well poised to kind of addressing its purpose? Has it gone astray? What's kind of your thought? Uh, I don't know. Um, I mean, I think what I said about methodology is definitely going in the right direction. Like people are getting more methodologically rigorous over time. So that's going in the right direction. Whether Mm -hmm. or not we need to step back and look at more of theoretically, philosophically, all that stuff, where there were, whether we even, whether people even started on the right track on a particular approach is, is another question. So I'm I'm more confident about method the methodological directions of the future than about the theoretical philosophical directions of the future. But but I mean there's there's uh, a lot of people you know looking into this area that are smart people that know a lot about a lot of different things. And so, mm-hmm. has there been any like big application of moral science that you think has been fruitful or given you hope? Uh, I mean, the one that I got most motivated about for, for was the moral, moral identity stuff. And I think probably the moral exemplar research, because that puts more kind of meat on the bones of things. And instead of just throwing around theoretical ideas, it's like, okay, let's look at actual people that are really moral and, reverse engineer them more or less and say, okay, well, what's, what's different about these people? So I feel I've, I've been really, I'm more, I'm really interested in that. And that continues to grow as like one, uh, interesting methodological approach to it. Uh, that's probably one that stands out the most to me. How has that information been applied? Like, I know there's, there's a lot of moral development programs that are being tested in schools has anything gone beyond that yet? Uh, well, they've been doing stuff on moral education even since Kohlberg and character education from more of the other perspective. So moral education is probably stuff that comes more from Kohlberg and character education is more from a virtue or a personality approach. But that's been around for a long time and people still are working on that. Um it's probably I don't I don't know what the current directions on that are honestly, but uh, just probably more people that are actually empirically testing the programs or trying to come up with theoretically grounded programs that have some uh, grounding in that kind of stuff. Uh, there's also a lot of positive psych interventions that are relevant that have to do with promoting virtues and stuff like that. 
Um, I guess other interesting stuff is related to the the person situation that you talked about before. So that seems really interesting that research on character and virtue that's trying to unpack that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Situation, person situation dynamics, that seems really interesting and innovative. Yeah, awesome. Well, thank you so much, Sam. I appreciate your willingness to impart wisdom about kind of the history of moral science and where it came from, where it is, and where it's going. No problem. Thanks. Yeah. Thanks for listening. If you have questions, comments, suggestions, or requests, contact me at www.moralsciencepodcast.com. The Moral Science Podcast is sponsored by ERA Inc., a research and design think tank that's reinventing how people interact with each other. Music throughout the program is My Kruby by Kindswider and can be found at freemusicarchive.org. Thank you.